Hi everyone, it's Joachim Akran, your host of the Elite Game Developers Podcast. A podcast about the entrepreneurs and investors who are building the games companies of the future. Today I'm talking with Jefferson Valaderas, the co-founder and CEO of Dopio Games, a voice games startup from Lisbon, Portugal. I've known Jeff for years since he was working in Helsinki for Digital Chocolate. After the years in Finland, Jeff worked at EA, BioWare, Bandai Namco, and finally it has come time for him to found a new game studio. This podcast is brought to you by Playtest Cloud, who make playtesting mobile games easy and convenient. Playtest Cloud allows game studios to record real gamers playing their mobile games. Just upload your build and Playtest Cloud will take care of the rest. Playtest Cloud offers many different ways to test your game. The cool thing is that you can even upload mockups of the game and get people to answer your questions regarding those mockups. When you have a build, you can just submit it for playtesting with real gamers. And either way, you'll get real and honest feedback from actual players. So Playtest Cloud has their own player pool of about 160,000 players. So you can choose the exact audience and mobile device you want to run your test on. Playtest Cloud allows a safe and secure test to run on people's device. So basically when the test is over, the game will automatically deactivate. Playtest Cloud will take care of everything and you don't need to worry about a thing. And listen to this, guys. For the listeners of the podcast, Playtest Cloud is offering a special promo just for new signups. When you go to playtestcloud.com and click on the sign up button, remember to mention Elite Game Developers in the How Did You Hear About Us menu and they'll upgrade your free trial to a premium free trial. Make playtesting mobile games easy and convenient with Playtest Cloud. Jeff, thank you so much for taking time to join me today on the podcast. My pleasure. I've been listening to them for a while, so it's kind of nice to be on the other side. Yeah, yeah. You're in Lisbon right now. Yes, I moved here a little over a year ago, yeah. How's the weather? (laughs) (laughs) Trick question. No, it's been great. I mean, honestly, yeah. This place reminds me a lot of San Francisco, actually. You know, it's kind of always sunny. There's fog sometimes. You know, there's hills and trams. And, you know, a red bridge. It's actually quite, uh, quite funny. <laughs> Weird. Is it like the kind of like not the hottest part of the country? Yeah, no, it's not. Like if you go inland, you know, on the Alentejo and like different regions, like it's definitely hotter, like high 30, 40s kind of stuff. Like I think Lisbon most of the time is, you know, somewhere between 25 and 30. Cool. Yeah, in Helsinki, it's really cold right now. It's like eight degrees or something. Oh, I guess had a good summer, so can't yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let's kick it off a bit here. How did you make your way into the game industry and to eventually found Doppio Games? Well, I'm from Brazil originally. I was in college. My university actually was quite good at um, getting people to do companies. So they had, you know, like this courses about entrepreneurship, and you know, we had like marketing lessons in, you know, while we we're in undergrad. So it's quite cool. So from the beginning, I was kind of thinking, yeah, I don't want just a job. I want to do my own thing. Eventually, we got together with some friends and we started a company. This was 1999. So this is like the height of the internet era, the like internet 1.0, <laughs> whatever. So we had this web publishing platform that we built. Actually, it turned out quite well. I mean, we built it in basically in a hurry. One of our partners had sold it to the Ministry of Science and Technology and we had to ship it in like three months or something. So we basically worked crazy hours, including weekends, 
to the point where a month afterwards I felt like, why do I even go back home? Or maybe I should just sleep in the office. So I got a sleeping bag and slept in the office for like the last two months. <laughs> and then, um, but I yeah, was shipped it. And, you know, that's kind of when I realized, okay, if this is going to be what my life's like, maybe I should do something I like and left the company and then started another one with games. That company lasted quite a bit of time. I think it maybe 17, 18 years, but, you know, I was only there for the first five. That's how I got started. Basically, you know, there's no jobs in the city where I was. So I had to start my own company. That was the, the only way to get started. <laughs> was there a games industry in Brazil at that stage? Not really at the time, but I think, you know, even from the beginning. So when I started this company, it was around 2000. And then I would say maybe a couple of years later, we were more established. So I started going around the country. Well, Brazil is a huge country. That's the other problem too. Like, so I think we did have a few companies, but they're all like different locations. So I tried to book my business trips with, combine them with, you know, opportunities to go meet the other companies. So I had gone to like, you know, the South of the country, the, to Brasilia, the capital, Sao Paulo and Rio and met like everybody I knew. Anytime I heard there was someone making games, I, I reach out to them and go and meet them. And I think that quite naturally led us to, so we created the Brazilian Developers Association in 2004. I was like one of the founders and the first president. That association just turned 15 years, which is quite great to see, like, you know, the work we started 15 years ago, it's actually bearing fruit. For B2GDC this year, like there's quite a large Brazil presence. So I think, you know, people see it and particularly now that I'm here in Portugal, people like look at it and say, oh, you guys in Brazil have everything. I'm like, no, we had nothing. <laughs> this is like built with like uh, sweat and blood like this is like we worked on this it wasn't like an accident the government didn't just come and said hey here's a massive stand that's gdc we had to build the whole thing over 15 years right so it wasn't quite like that but today i think brazil does have some recognizable games and it's definitely in a much better place than it used to be back then yeah i remember when the igda started in finland in 2003 and there was like a small pub in helsinki where there was like 15 odd guys sitting and playing board games. That was the first IDGA ever. I think you guys had the similar kind of like small group that started growing and then exponentially. Again, the difficulty we had in Brazil was the geography, right? So my first GDC was in 2001. I was actually one of the IGDA like scholarship students in 2001. So I joined the IGDA in 2000, been a member for like 20 years, I guess. And then yeah, so I went to GDC and then I came back actually with a chapter. So I started the Brazil chapter around that time. So I guess it's a little bolder than the Finnish one, but the concept of it was it would be a traveling meeting. Like, so if I was in Sao Paulo, then I would get some, and as we're like a game company, we're kind of interesting. I had a lot of contacts in the press. So basically we'd use their help to kind of say, hey, we're going to have a game developer meeting in Sao Paulo this week. And then that's how I would meet some of the people and basically like, you know, try to use the flag of the IGDA to kind of unite the local community as well. That's kind of, you know, the work I had to do for the first, you know, few years. Yeah. How did you end up in Finland? <laughs> so it, it's actually quite interesting too. Like it's very obvious, you know, every Brazilian ends up in Finland, you know, just how nature works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Like one of the people I met in my first GDC was Lasse Seppanen. He was at Nokia at the time. We connected and then, you know, next year we met again. So we became more friends. And then next year we became like further friends. And then at some point in 2005, when I felt like I had learned everything I could in Brazil and I really had to go abroad, like Sume, I was hiring and he was kind of had a studio there at the time. So, you know, I kind of reached out to him and say like, hey, I just saw you had a producer job. Like, you think it would work for me? And then he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah please apply. And then kind of applied. And then I went to Finland in June or July in 2005. Which I guess is how Finnish companies hire people. They bring people in summer and then yes. they look at it and like, oh my God, this is amazing. <laughs> mm, yeah, you can see then, the nature and everything <laughs> in the best light possible. Yeah, yeah exactly. 
yeah, so you know, I think the interview went really well, and I liked you know the people I talked to, and I moved in August 2005, so that's how I came there. Yeah, you had your career basically spanned from there that you went to EA, but basically Playfish yeah. EA to the states, and now you're back in a smaller company, but. It's super interesting to hear, like, you've seen so many interesting companies. What have you learned about how people run these companies, these big companies? Yeah, it's quite interesting. Like, I would say, obviously, the two large companies I have a lot of experience with were EA and Bandai Namco. EA is like a big American corporation, so it's kind of useful to work for EA, both from outside the U.S., but also from headquarters. So I actually work at Red, in Red Butchers, or at the time I was in the U.S., it's quite interesting to see the dynamics of, you know, like when you are in the HQ and when you're like in a different uh, location. Yeah, I learned a lot from EA, like, you know, how they really like, in the point of like expenses, like they really don't hold any, like, you know, if anything they need to make the game better, they would spend the extra money. And there was always somebody telling me like, hey, do you want to get a consultant to help with that? Or, you know, do you want to do some research? Or do you want to do like, there's always like the opportunity because, you know, in a small company, you never want to do these things because you never have the money. So you're basically mm-hmm. just trying to figure out like how to get the most done with the least amount of money possible, right? And then mm-hmm. I think EA was good at like basically just making sure you spent the money, like saying like, hey, this would help, do it. Don't try to save money because it's not about saving money. It's about doing the right thing. And I think also the ambition, the fact that they always want to be first and, you know, do the biggest thing possible. And, you know, it's frustrating at times because, you know, as a team, you want to sometimes you want to do something small. But, you know, they don't really care about small, like, you know, to be like, unless it's like massive, like nobody cares. So they always ask like, okay, I can put 100 people on your team or I can put 100 people more on FIFA and, you know, that would generate me more money. So, you know, what can you do for me kind of thing? So it's an interesting mentality, very, you know, professionally run and uh, think about the market, etc. But in Amco, one of the lessons there is companies tend to be similar to their local cultures. So, you know, like, again, EA is like very American, like capitalist, like, you know, in, about profit and, you know, the growing and that kind of stuff. Whereas like, you know, Namco is more Japanese. So it's more about community and, you know, stability and respecting authority and those things, right? So I think like you, you can see even in the US branch, like you can feel that strongly in like, you know, the Japanese values. And I think that's actually interesting experience. A lot of, a lot of people I know who worked at Japanese companies, when I asked them actually, I said, hey, I got this offer from Namco. Do you think I should take it? Most of my friends said, don't do it. Working for a Japanese company will drive you crazy. <laughs> I can see why now, because, you know, honestly, they work in their way. And, you know, sometimes it doesn't matter what you say or, you know, how you think or, you know, you really got to understand how stuff comes over. But I think, you know, as long as you understand it, Namco did a good job, I think, at having the cultural training. So we had, you know, training about what Japanese culture is like, what people mean when they say something. Because, you know, in Japan, if you ask them a question, they say, mm, it's difficult. Basically, they're telling you no. But like, you know, in our case, we hear it's difficult and we're like, yes, we can do it. But no, no, yeah, we're, we're the best. We can overcome this challenge. And to them, they're basically trying very politely to tell you like, no. <laughs> but <laughs> once you understand those things, then it's a lot easier. And if you're okay with that, then I think you can survive. But if you don't buy into what they do, then it's very hard to be happy there because it's a very strong culture, et cetera. So yeah, I think the lessons I learned is like, yeah, they really mirror to some extent the culture of the places they're in. Which one of those, if you think about the Asian mega companies in the game industry versus the US, what are the differences there for like the kind of mimicking a culture of a big company to kind of like, you know, break out as a big company? Because there's not that many new companies coming up. What are the lessons there? The Asian way is more kind of organized, 
almost like military in a way, right? So they're organizing these ranks and then people just follow and they kind of do, and that's kind of their power because they can direct resources towards a thing and then they all go. I think in the US, it's more the fact that um, because the labor laws are also like more loose and stuff, like you can change direction faster. So, you know, in the US, like if you decide you want to do MEA, was doing that pretty much every year, they would basically say, okay, we're going to focus more on this thing. So they would keep the headcount, but they would say, okay, this 40 people here working on web things that we don't care about anymore, like are gone. And then we're going to open 40 new jobs into this new space, like mobile or whatever. I mean, they would definitely be doing this, this thing very quickly. Yeah. So that's kind of, I think, the approach they have. I honestly think it's probably somewhere in between because I think in the US, you do need some long term. And that's another difference I think I found between the two approaches. Like in Asia, they do think more long term. So, you know, in Japan, when I joined, I was asked to build a three year plan, which was completely followed. Like I did, you know, I had a plan and obviously we adjusted, but, you know, it was kind of like my plan. And I had, you know, the three years I was there. And, you know, even the reason why I left is because there's no point staying there unless you stay for another three years, right? So mm-hmm. we were talking about like, okay, like what's the next three years going to be? And does it make sense? And, you know, should we move to Japan instead? And like there's these discussions. Whereas like, again, in the US, like people will say they have a three-year plan, but quite often will change in the next six months because the speed of change in the US is much more, which, you know, has some upsides. But I also believe the Americans could benefit from a little bit more staying with the plan sometimes, or at least staying with the vision and not trying to change so much. Just for change sake, you know, there's a joke if you know people who work in American companies about reorgs, you know, they're like, you know, three reorgs a year. And, and I think to some extent it's nice because, you know, the organization does affect what do you get done? So it's important, I think, to change your organization. You shouldn't keep your company organization the same forever because it does drive behavior, but changing it so much as well to the point where you can't even get stable, maybe it's a little detrimental, you know? Well, I was reading The Alliance, which is a book by Reid Hoffman, the founder of LinkedIn. Right, and LinkedIn, yeah. He talks about this tour of duty, which is basically like come up with a two-year plan or three-year plan, and then you're basically aligned with the employee and the employer are aligned to a plan and they kind of like can see what the situation is constantly. And once the time period is over, it's kind of like, are they continuing? Are they moving on? What is how both sides see it? So it's constantly, it's like, you know, and then you're not left behind. If you want to do something else, the employer will come and help you in your new thing. So it's very, very healthy in a sense. It's kind of like planned part of your life that you're going to be spending here. So you're not constantly thinking, should I go, you know, somewhere else or what should I do? Yeah, that's actually quite smart because yeah, I think it's a really good point you made. Like if the employee and, you know, that's kind of the behavior you get to when you're in the US, if you feel your employer is not helping you and committed to you, then really you're always looking because there's so many opportunities and there's so much stuff going on. Like in my case, you know, I kind of enjoyed the. That's another reason why I enjoyed the three-year plans because I didn't have to look around because I knew I had the support to do my thing. So I could just like focus on my job, right? I didn't have to be worried and, you know, look for what I'm going to do next or whatever. But again, if you're in a company which is changing all the time and people and, you know, the first sign of trouble, they lay some people off and, you know, they, without trying to put them somewhere else, like I think it would drive behavior in, in people that they feel like they got to look after themselves and not after the company. And I think at that stage, you're probably not getting the most out of people because, you know, they're just trying to kind of plan their next thing and not actually do something while they're with you, you know. So I think on the other hand, again, if you're in Japan and things don't change and you know you're going to work there for 30 years because that's kind of what effective people still do. They yes. start as an intern and they retire there, right? And that's also maybe not the best way to kind of, you know, get the most out of people. So I think, I mean, finding some 
And that's kind of part of the reason why I wanted to come back to Europe, because I think Europe has, in my opinion, a little bit more balanced values. So it does have, you know, the economic, let's grow and things like that. But there's also the community sense. But in my mind, it's a bit of a balance. Whereas again, like I think Japan maybe is too community driven and US is maybe too like business driven. So I think, you know, I kind of like having a little bit of both. Makes sense. Hey, you worked for Mr. Il Capone and back in the days. Yeah. Looking at like how Rush Wars came out now into soft launch and it's the most talked about topic and everybody yeah. is, you know, big anticipation, everything. Thinking about Supercell, it's basically the only huge thing that has come out of Europe for ages. And how do you think that, you know, Ilka as the CEO sees the world differently so that they can actually, you know, build something like that? Yeah, I mean, I'm not privy to like all the conversations that go inside Supercell, but, you know, knowing Ilka and like seeing the stuff that happened, I think the probably his biggest thing, and I think he would probably agree with this, is like he just has common sense. And I think like the understanding of like uh, trusting people and, you know, knowing that as long as you kind of have, I mean, obviously they kind of, uh, I don't know that Supercell would be impossible without the first success. Because I think, you know, sometimes you can have all these ideas, but if you don't have the money to kind of survive, then you're not going to be able to implement it. But I think other companies might have grew too much. So, you know, like, you know, I, I mean, it was kind of super shocking that they kept to like 100 people for so long. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. like yeah, any company, or I would say most companies would grow to like a thousand people, like with the money they were making, right? So I think yeah. if you... And, you know, I don't know if that's the right way to do it, but I think he at least like wasn't swept by the success and was able to kind of, again, like keep his two feet in the ground and like, okay, this is the... And again, that's a very Finnish thing. I think like, again, that would have happened outside of Finland. <laughs> <laughs> I think be. there's a matter of like being practical and mm-hmm. like not get carried away with the success. So I think that was like a, an important part. And yeah, you know, trusting the team. Obviously he had a really good team for the start which they know, you know, they, those guys have been together for a while, so they kind of know each other, trust each other. And it's a lot easier to build something great when you have like a super strong core like they do. Mm. I was just thinking about this one video that came a few years ago where they have this graveyard where the Clash of Clans characters, Boom Beach characters, the chicken are just watching right, right. the graveyard where there's all the killed games. Right. <laughs> and it was a, like a very interesting message to put out. Like, But it's so true that they put out a game every second year or so, and they have all the resources to put out more. But yeah. it's such a cool thing that the core of delivering something special is what really matters to them. Yeah, that's a really good point. You know, last time we chatted, we were talking about the challenge of a startup. And I think that's one of them. It's like basically choosing what to do and what not to do. It's very easy to get carried away with one thing, either because, you know, it sounds cool or because, you know, that's what your investors want you to do or because that's what people at the IGDA meeting want to hear, like, you know, like there's, there's a lot of pressure that comes from all sides. There's like, you know, friends and family, like sometimes yeah. people want to look good to their friends. Sometimes they want to look good in the industry. Sometimes they want to have a lot of headcount so they can brag about it and different things. Right. And I think being able to ignore all of that and focus on the right thing, it's very hard. And again, that's one of the things I think they do particularly well. Do you think that in the future, everybody's going to be adapting smaller teams versus like, you know, putting 50 people? Right. Onto a project. That's super tough. I mean, like, obviously, you can do more than with more people. There is an element there of, like, uh, if you get something that works well and it's a big team, you can actually get more stuff done. But there's probably an element of, like, you don't want to start a game with, like, too many people ever. Like, you really want to keep it as most possible as, you, as long as you can. Because, yeah, there's some dynamics when you have a team and it goes past, you know, like, eight things change a little bit and then we go past 15, it changes a little bit more and then, you know, 40 and then 70 and then 100. So I think 
it becomes a little bit less impersonal and more kind of comedy type stuff. But again, like I think there's games where it's okay to be a production line. Like if it's a live game that I know like you need more content and things like that, maybe it's okay to build a big production line. But yeah, if you want to innovate, I think the small team is probably the way to go. Because you mm-hmm. get more of the, I mean, again, you have got to have the right people in the small team. But <laughs> if you have the right combination of people in the small team, I think that's the most powerful thing. Because it makes everybody more engaged and like more responsible for what's going on. So you get, you actually get, I think, more buy-in and more effort and more real thinking like from people rather than if they're just like part of the cog you know like in the machine so Mm. the telltale like example of them having 250 people in in the bay area working on story driven games which weren't really free to play games and the the model just didn't seem to work i think somebody's now starting the company again but it still feels like how do they break out of that pattern of building so much content-heavy stuff with a lot of people and the economics just aren't there? Yeah, it's a really good question. And, you know, it's funny because I'm in a space where it's new, so there's not, you know, a lot of money. It's like, a, it's a lot of users, the money's coming, but it's not, you know, massive like mobile. And, you know, that kind of dictates the type of games that show up. So if you look at, you know, the space, there's not a lot of like high production values. There's not a lot mm-hmm. of like really good writing. And again, it's because people can't afford it because, you know, they are not actually making the money. So yeah, I think there is some element of you don't want to grow. I mean, the reason why we got investment is because we want to get ahead of it because we think the market is coming and we just want to be like the best position when it's actually here, when, mm-hmm. and, you know, we think it's going to be in a year or two. But yeah, you can't fight market economics. So it's like, I think if it costs you that much to make a game, but you know, you're not going to get the money back. Again, I don't know how much of it is like, you know, vanity, the fact that you have the IPs and those other things. Mm-hmm. So you kind of just keep going. Even though it might not make sense and you're like, oh, I'll figure it out in the future. I don't know. I mean, I wasn't, again, I wasn't inside there, so I can't talk too much about it. But looking from the outside, maybe they kind of overstepped. And again, that's kind of the thing that Supercell probably wouldn't do. But yeah, that's another cultural thing. Yeah. Then at the opposite end, you have Voodoo, who can basically churn out hundreds of games a year and like (laughs) test them very effectively and see what's going on. Like, is that model really the future that you can validate quickly and then kill like is that a clear advantage versus what the telltale guys are doing i don't know i think there are different games for different people right so i think like yeah if you're just trying to do like a pastime type thing then yeah i think you can do something like you no know, more like i don't know, let's say shallow experience not in shallow in a bad way but shallow as in like you know simple experience so those games are fun but they're basically trying to like capture what the you know the zeitgeist like what people in the moment want to do that's a totally valid approach, in my opinion. I tried to do something similar in different times in my career, and it's hard in a big company like to justify, because like, again, that's about funding, right? In a large company, if you want to get money, like you got to show why you're going to make more money than FIFA, you know, like mm. uh, per person. So, <laughs> otherwise, they're just going to put it in FIFA, you know? <laughs> that's kind of how it works. So it's hard to invest into the kind of these unproven things. I mean, you can do it, obviously, and different companies do it. But I think that's when, again, a startup has the advantage because they're not bound by like being a listed company and having investors and all those things. So I think that's the advantage startups should be trying to be, like, you know, going to the areas where, again, that's why I didn't go into mobile. Like, a lot of my friends were saying when I wanted to do something, like, oh, you should just do a mobile studio. Like, you would definitely get the funding. And I'm like, yeah, but then what's going to happen? I'm just going to die <laughs> in three years. Like, this is going to be like a bloodbath. Like, I'd rather try to use the benefits of being outside of the space and try to find some angle, which I think can be more successful, you know? Yeah, what you guys are doing now is very interesting. Like, first time I heard about this whole genre was 
in Slush last year when uh, Christian Segastrola was on stage that he would definitely invest in some kind of smart speaker game. So this yeah. is like, can you explain like how that idea came about? What is the genre actually? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, actually, Chris is like one of the first people I talked about this. Like, you know, I was talking to him about some storytelling thing I wanted to do. And then he was the first one actually who pointed me to smart speakers. He said, like, hey, do you, have you thought about smart speakers? And there's something there. And I'm like, okay, whatever, Chris. And then I <laughs> left. But I think like, you know, a couple of months later, I started seeing the news. Because I think the one thing he did is like he planted the bug. And then I started paying attention. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is like really growing. And then I started looking more into the tech and different things. I'm like, okay, this is quite interesting. And then what happened was like the moment when me and Chris as my co-founder, like we we're starting to crystallize the idea of doing the company was around the same time when Alexa announced that they had in-app purchases or what they call in-skill purchases, but it's the same thing, right? And that finally enabled the market because up until then, there was no way to kind of make money from the consumers. It was just like, you know, you had somebody who had to pay you to do the app or whatever, right? So when we saw that, we're like, okay, there's a real market here. The device trend is crazy. So from business perspective, it looks like there's something that could be good here. But also creatively, I mean, I don't know if you play these games, but you know, there's something strange about talking to a game. There's something emotional that happens when air comes out of your throat that like makes you more committed to what you're saying than yeah. if you're just tapping. You know what I mean? There's some mm. something human about it. So it definitely feels a little bit like a different type of entertainment. Yeah. And you know, I say that, and of course, the very first popular games are like simple things like quizzes and trivia and things like that. So the I don't think the media right now is where it will eventually be, but it's enough to feel like, okay, there's something cool here. And that's kind of why we started because we felt there's a business opportunity, but also creative opportunity that we can actually like add something to games that wasn't quite done before. So I think those are the two things that got us excited about it. I'm actually a subscriber of Calm, which is a sleep and meditation app. And the quality, it's hard to kind of like compare to any kind of other content that I've been consuming ever before because it's the audio that I get kind of like puts me into a different mood versus yeah, like yeah, watching yeah. a movie that is calming. It's, and I was just thinking about then you guys have the interaction between the application and the user and that takes it to a totally new level. Yeah, it's kind of like an interactive podcast to some extent, that's right. So I think that's how it feels. Like, uh, and yeah, podcasts were not a thing that made us feel like there was something here. You know, the fact that, you know, the, the rise in consumption of those things. And I think obviously we're not making audio only games. You know, all of our games have some graphics and I think graphics are going to become more prevalent. But, you know, at least, you know, both of our first two games, like you don't need the graphics to play. You can just play with audio. Can you tell um, more about the graphics of an audio game? How does that work? <laughs> yeah. So basically some of these smart speakers have screens on them. So like you know, the Echo Show or the Google Nest Hub. And we can use that to put some information. So while you're playing, you're talking to the thing, you can look and see some information there, right? But again, that's one area that we're still experimenting because you don't sit in front of that tiny screen and look at it for two hours, right? So it's not how it works. Usually, like, you talk when you're, like, doing something. Like, you know, I have a lot of friends who play when they're doing the laundry. I have people who play when they're running. People who play when they're driving. So I think it's generally one of the best times to do it, like podcasts and or maybe not meditation, but like it, while you're doing something else, you know, like this kind of nice thing of audio is like, you know, it's in the background and you can kind of deal with it. Yeah, I was just thinking like, how is the engagement different from like a mobile game? Like are the session length similar? Are you looking at retention similarly? Yeah, we obviously our background is in mobile free-to-play. So we kind of brought our expertise there and we apply it. And at least in the beginning, we started looking at similar numbers to try to figure out. I mean, the retention curves are very different. We do have like quite good long-term retention. But yeah, we basically designed the game to be 
played in two sessions a day for like five to seven minutes. That's how we thought about the game. It's like, you know, as you leave home in the morning, people usually when they have the speakers, they might ask, what's the traffic? Is it going to rain today? So that's another time that you can play the game. And then you go to work. And then when you come back, it's like people will ask, you know, what was in the news today? And, you know, like, what's the weather going to be tomorrow? Whatever. And then they can actually play again. So that's how we design the game. Like, so when you leave and when you come back home, those are the two times you play. Yeah. In practice, the session lengths are, the average is around five minutes. So it's on the lower end of the five to seven that we guessed. But, you know, it's five minutes. So people usually play, they do a few interactions and then they go. And uh, on average, people are doing it, I think at some point it was like three times a day. Now it's probably a little less. But, uh, you know, people play multiple times a day. I would say somewhere between one to three times a day. That's how usually people play. And then to finish, like we have a chapter of a story in our first game. On average, people take six weeks to finish. So they play every day a couple of times. And then, you know, over a period of six weeks, obviously we did have a guy who finished in the first day by, you know, buying buying all the stuff that we had in the game. He finished mm-hmm. in like hours. It's possible, but even I was shocked that somebody actually did it. But that's how free to play works. But yeah, most people take about six weeks. So it's a kind of more paced. And again, that's the different thing. I mean, it's a little bit like mobile because you're playing a little bit every day. But we also try to make it so all of our games are conversational games. So it's games you're talking to another character. So basically the metaphor is like you tell the character, go do this for me. And then they go away and then and then it can go to work. And when you come back, they say, hey, I did the thing you asked for. And here's what happened. So there's some, like, again, there's some human element to it. Like you're, you're talking to these characters and not just, you know, giving commands or, you know, like, uh, so I think those are the type of games that we're trying to make. Yeah. Do you think that going into this market, you can do basically all the stuff that you've done previously in free-to-play, but are there certain things that are very different for user acquisition, for monetization, for engagement? Yeah, honestly, like user acquisition is so different. That's actually the reason why we hired a marketing person, even though we're kind of early stage. And I think, you know, if you think if I was just doing a mobile studio, maybe I wouldn't do it because, you know, the book on UA is kind of written and things like that. But this space is so new that it's actually worth so investing in someone to kind of learn and mm-hmm. do experiments. So yeah, all of our marketing budgets for experiments because we're trying to figure out like, okay, is it Facebook? Is it podcast advertising? Is it featuring? Is it IP? So we've been trying like a little bit of everything to try to kind of learn again. That those are the two, always the two things that we consider as we're building this company. It's like, okay, how do we get the most out of the creative side, but also like, how do we turn this into a business? Like we're always like trying to connect those two things. Like, cause yeah, we can make something cool, but if we can't make any money from it, then we're going to die. Right. So I think we need, we're always like trying to figure out the two sides of the coin. Yeah. How are the players liking it? And do you see the market emerging that there's competition coming in already? Yeah, there's a ton of competition. It's just generally not like professional developers like us. Like, you know, that's one of the things that one of the reasons why both Amazon and Google really like this and they both invested. It's because a lot of the people who make these things are somebody who made the scale and then you got some traction and then Mm -hmm. they became a full-time skill developer, right? They're not like game developers or anything like that. Like they're people who stumbled into it. But then when we came with our backgrounds and said, like, yes, we made all those games and, you know, we're going to bring our games as a service experience to bear and build the future of this thing, then they got super excited. There are a few companies. I mean, there's a drive time, which is, you know, Mr. Vuori, another kind of Finnish. There's always like some Finnish connection in every part of the game industry, it seems. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) They just got like a big A round. There's Volley in San Francisco, who is like, you know, the first company to kind of get funding for this. There's a couple of of like VC funded Mm -hmm. companies. And then there's other companies that maybe not as strongly VC funded, but uh, a lot of them turn into tool providers, which I guess it's like a standard thing that happens in the market. They probably went a little too early 
And then they realize that the only way to make money is actually from selling stuff to other people. So they turn into like being a tool provider. So there's a lot of like tool providers in the space. There's yeah. you know, analytics, content creators, like there's a lot of people there. Mm. On the content side, there's less, I would say like super high quality competition. Mm. I'm just very curious because this is a new platform and it doesn't happen too often that there's an opportunity to jump on a new platform. Like the recent ones have been AR, location-based games. Then there's Apple Watch. There was a, yeah, yeah. a Finnish company that recently, they were doing Apple Watch games, but they, yeah, they changed to mobile everywhere. Yeah. So I'm very curious about this platform. How do you see it as you know something that will be welcoming for gaming experience versus those others? Yeah, it's funny like uh, you mentioned that because I think I got some, not a ton, but I got some of that question when I was doing the fundraising. So a lot of people ask, like, you know, how is this not going to be the same as AR or smartwatches or whatever? So I think there's two main reasons. I think one is, first, it's like the just accessibility of the device. So, you know, these things cost, you know, 30, 50 bucks. It's not like a massive thing that you got to, again, the use cost is super low. You just in the living room, you can just say something, it works. Like there's no way to, like when you play a game, like you just say, open the vortex and like you don't need to install anything. It just starts playing, mm-hmm. right? It's super cool. That part of it, it's like easy to access. It's cheap to get the device. And the quality of the kind of voice recognition improves all the time, you know, and it might not be perfect, particularly if you have an accent, particularly like if, yeah, if you're playing from Finland, maybe you have a harder time than if you're from the West Coast. Oh, but sure. <laughs> but Siri uh, doesn't still work for yeah. me. <laughs> <It's> like... <laughs> yeah, so those things are real problems, but, you know, they're getting better all the time. So I think uh, eventually you can see that that's going to get like corrected soon. So there's the accessibility of the device. And then the second thing is, honestly, voice is a supernatural thing to do. So we're doing it right now. Like, um, you know, it's one of the things that we use as humans. We always use this to negotiate and to build relationships and to do all those things. So another kind of data point I have, you know, if you think I have friends who have kids who have, you know, they used to watch whatever videos on iPad and they always like have to give the iPad to the father because they can't read, right? So they just give the iPad to the father. It's like, hey, I want to watch cat videos or whatever. Then the father would type cat video and they give back to them. And then they'd watch the video. And then eventually he realized that they weren't asking him anymore. And they're like, why is she not asking me to look at the, like, the, and then she, hey, how did you learn to, like, did you learn how to write? And she's like, no, I found the microphone button. And I just say cat videos. And then it works, right? So like, nice. <laughs> it cuts like a, something that, again, that, you know, you can do it very young, even before you learn how to do. And you might not know how to use something, but you know what you want. So I think mm-hmm. that's kind of the switch. Like if you think from a, like, you know, the work that we do as a developer, our work is not to provide the user with a menu with 30 options. Our work yeah. is like to decipher what the hell they meant and, like, <laughs> and then yeah. deliver it to them. That's kind of the work we do. We yeah. try to keep the game super simple. So they just say like, hey, what's my balance of coins or whatever? And then we have to actually be ready to apply to whatever they say at any time in the game. You know, that's kind of like our challenge. It's a very flat menu. Both the kind of human natural part of it, together with the fact that it's um, cheap and you know available everywhere, kind of thing. I think those two things combined make me way more confident than you know I would be about smartwatches or VR. You know, mm. yeah, totally agree with that. And you know, AirPods are constantly with everybody. Yeah, yeah AirPods are a funny thing because I think it's the same thing with the Bluetooth headset years ago, right? So like. When somebody was wearing one and talking to themselves, everybody was like, oh, what a douchebag, like a crazy guy or whatever. Now it's like completely accepted that it's a thing you do. You talk in public, 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think those are the things that change, you know, behavior changes that, you know, in the last 10 years or so that enable this kind of stuff we're talking about. And again, I have friends who have, you know, like a headset that has Google Assistant on them and they actually play when they're running. They go out running and then they play the game as they're running mm. because that's, you know, a time that maybe they wouldn't do anything or maybe listen to music or maybe just do a podcast, but now they can actually play a game as well. Yes. Yeah. And it's always nice to mix up what you're kind of like putting in your ears. So it doesn't always need to be somebody you know, a smart ass talking to you in a podcast or something. Right. Yeah. Thinking about like, now that you guys are growing the company, like you've had experience of being a manager in different companies. What are the lessons learned there for hiring people for you? What is important now? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, like obviously culture fits and, you know, and I think personal chemistry, not just with me, but with everybody else. So like everybody who we bring, they interview with everyone, even if they're not like, so for instance, you know, the, we hired a marketing person. Technically, I didn't have to run her through the game designers and the engineers, but we did. Because I think there is some element of like, we're going to war with this person. <laughs> we better feel like, we, you know, we can get along, you know? Yeah. So I think that's always been an important thing. I think the one thing that I think I've changed from my early days to now was the fact that, you know, in the past, I used to value a lot the experience of doing the thing, sometimes more than the passion for the space and the desire to get better mm. and i've learned that's actually better to bet on someone who might be slightly behind on the experience but actually wants to make it happen rather than um, just someone because they have more years or you know they've done more things can you tell me more about this make it happen what does that mean for you <laughs> Well, so given a recent example, so, you know, like the product manager we hired, he reached out to us and he said like, hey, I'm super interested about voice space. I was actually starting to build a business plan for my own company, but then I saw your funny announcement and I would rather work for you because, you know, you seem to have, you know, we're aligned. Everything you say is what I believe, but you're ahead of me. So I might as well join you. <laughs> good. And yeah, this is kind of like a really good pitch, I thought, because he was yeah. like, I talked to him and it's like, yeah, he really follows the space and he believes in it. And, you know, so I think, again, you know, he doesn't have, let's say, as much actual, like, you know, live game product experience as someone else that I could have found who ran a live game for like 10 years or something. But yeah. I think he had the, the mind in the right space. And I think he really wants to learn and get better and improve. And I learned that over the years that it was better to bet in those people than, you know, someone just because they have more experience. That's a, one thing I learned. Mm. It's good. Yeah. But this my opinion change because I think in the beginning I used to value more had they done this enough. And now yeah. I think it's more like, are they made of the right stuff? And then, of course, it helps if they have done at least some of it. And like these days, I'm more worried about like, are you made of the right stuff for this? Then, uh, so it's more about, I guess, like mm. personality, character, fit than necessarily skills. Yeah, and like all the the ambition level, curiosity level, interest yeah. in the particular. And of course, like he's good at all the PM things. So, you know, he mm. went to business school and things like that. So it's not like he's not ready for it. But I think there's an element of, uh, you know, maybe a few years ago, I would have picked somebody with more experience rather than just picking the, what I now I can see this is like a perfect fit for what we're doing because it's new anyway. So like, you know, like we're going to learn. So might as well learn with somebody who actually is motivated. Does that help you to determine if the hire is ready for a startup versus a big company. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, actually. Yeah, so startups, I think the, the biggest difference, and I was kind of lucky, like you said, I'm very pleased with like, the way my experience turned out. Obviously, I didn't plan it this way, but I did work in like my own companies, someone else's like startups, both like kind of A round, but also like a little bit further, and then massive companies. 
mm-hmm. and you know different offices in these massive companies. So I think I've had exposure to a bunch of different things. And you're absolutely right. Like if you need to be told what to do, and if you need like all the resources to do your job, then you know startup is going to be difficult. No, it's not impossible. It's just like it's going to be. But again, if you're the kind of person who wants to figure it out and doesn't need a lot of guidance and likes to learn, then I think you fit better in a startup. As an example, like I remember going to first time I went to EA in the UK, like they I had a conversation with my coworkers and they were complaining about the monitor size. They're like, oh, our monitors are so small. And I'm like, dude, we didn't even have a monitor like in Brazil. Like, <laughs> we had one 3DS license that we floated around. Like, there's all this stuff you had to do to make things work when you didn't have the resources, right? And then people were like, again, in a big company, people were complaining about like this inane things, you know? And there's probably different times in life where like one is better than the other. I'm quite happy that I was able to do startup first because I'll never get the exposure to do the ability to do. Again, the other benefit of a startup is that you're probably going to do things that you wouldn't be allowed in a big company. Because a big company, everybody has like a very small box that they're in. Whereas in a startup, you can actually generally like do whatever as long as you're doing it and responsibly, like people will let you do it, you know? So I was able to kind of grow there and then actually learn how it's done. Because I also really value the experience of being in a large company to like really learn how to do marketing customer research, like production, like, you know, how to deliver games, like how to look at a tech platform, like how to do like, there's a lot of like craft that goes into making games that large companies are really good at. So I think, you know, I was really happy to have learned from a ton of like talented people and how to actually make all the things that go into making a game better. But yeah, now I feel great that I can apply that for my own company. And basically like, I know how to make games. I know how to build teams. It's a new space. It's creatively interesting. Like, yeah, so I'm, I'm very happy at the moment, despite being like out of time every day. But yeah, it's, a, <laughs> it's a, still a good feeling. <laughs> you guys are very early. So this another topic that's super interesting when you're hiring, growing a small team. How do you approach compensation with equity versus salary? Yeah, it's funny. Like, I think, if, again, that's another thing that different countries I found are in different parts, right? So if I was doing it in San Francisco, there's no way you could do this without equity because, you know, just expected and that's kind of like one of the expected trade-offs when people go to they choose a startup they want more equity if they choose a big company they want like you know a better package or whatever i find in europe is not as developed the sense of equity so right now we're not doing like obviously we just need like a convertible kind of round with a safe so right now it's just me and chris own the whole thing but we do have the plan to give equity to people i've been through a few acquisitions both on the kind of acquire side and on the acquirer and the acquired sides and i think one of the things I was super pleased with, again, Chris at Playfish is like they, and I'm, you know, putting words in his mouth, but like, I think they, so I don't know if this is 100% true, but I think based on his experience at Glue, I think they felt like they could have treated people better, like once the microspace was bought by Glue. And when they built Playfish, they really made the point of like making sure that everybody got something. So like when EA bought Playfish, like everyone in the company got something, right? So I think there was a general sense of, yes, this was like worth it. And yes, let's go and build this thing for EA now because, you know, everybody was happy with the, the outcome. I've definitely seen some deals where, you know, maybe a company was bought and then there's like just the founders and maybe the founder's best friend got some money. And then like that made like a super negative feeling in the company post-acquisition. And, you know, as a company who acquired, like you're trying to make sure things are, people are happy and it's very hard because there's some history that you don't control. And so in my case, I want to set this up for success. I definitely want the team to be part of it. And then I don't know what's going to happen in the future, but yeah, I definitely want people who took the jump and, you know, who believed in it and like be rewarded later. 
even though they don't care, like, like I said, if, I mean, Portugal people generally don't care about stock. Nobody asks. Like, uh, but I think that's something that I want to give. And sometimes it's the tax implications and the fact that like it's not as easy to kind of get you know equity in, in Europe in general compared to the US. But I still think it's a valuable part. And, and you know, I guess it's a personal philosophy too. Like, you know, that we build a company. I want to make sure that the people who came with us, like, if something happens, they get the benefit of it. You know. Yeah, it's totally true that in Europe, stock options, people don't know what they mean and how to treat them and what is this worth for me? Because, you know, I need my right. salary and whatnot. And it's, yeah, I don't know if it's improving as quickly. As well, again, in Japan, like nobody has stock. The stock is only for like investors, it's not like an employee thing. Right? So it's like, again, it's a little bit cultural and how the economy works for each of those places. But I think my approach, and that's why I said, like, again, I think that's kind of like my personal philosophy is that, you know, the people who came in early and bet on it and they really helped make it work, then I think they deserve something in case something happens. You know, so I would do it even if they don't want to. I will offer it to them. <laughs> yeah. One thing I've been thinking about a lot is like when you have these success cases that if there's like, you know, secondary rounds where part of the employees and founders can sell part of their shares, if you given options early enough that you have employees who can cash out a bit, there's a possibility to build an actual like angel community into Europe, which doesn't really exist yet properly. Right. Yeah, that's, that's right. Something, that's a big bet that I, like, why I would like that to happen more. So, Yeah, you're absolutely right. I'm here in Portugal, it's a new space. So the games industry here is like not super developed, right? Compared to like Finland or London or whatever. And, you know, they ask me, like, how, how do I think I get there? And I, I kind of tell them, like, I mean, sometimes all you need is, like, one big success. Because, you know, what's mm. going to happen is, like, that company is going to be successful. And then there's going to be some sort of exit. And then a lot of people there are going to get some money. So they can actually go off and build their thing yeah. or invest in another thing. And that's how it grows locally. But, yeah, I think it's hard without that first, like, example. And, again, Supercell and Rovio and, you know, those companies, like, really drove a lot of that, to struggle to some extent, like, really drove a lot of that community in, in Finland. And I think, you know, that's kind of what we need here is, like, one company who's successful who can actually, you know, kind of drive. For example, like, I'll give you, like, just an example. I had my company back in Brazil 20 years ago, right? Now, when you go to Brazil, like, a lot of people who used to work for me, like, have their own companies now. Or, you know, they're like at Supercell or they're like in different studios somewhere. It's kind of like really cool when I look back and say like, yes, it's kind of like my family in some ways. You know, if I draw the map and I'm like, oh yeah, these people are all like still in the industry. They're making big things now. Yeah. And you could argue that it probably wouldn't have happened if I hadn't started my own company or it would have been delayed or pushed back, you know? So I think one company can make that difference years later if it's like a well done and or successful. It is in so many ways, for sure. What is your approach to autonomous teams in a games company. Now that you've seen so many companies <laughs> along the way, what is the outcome? What is kind of like your current stage of understanding autonomous teams? Yeah, my understanding of autonomous teams is teams should have the autonomy they deserve. And what I mean by that is like, if there's a team who really knows what they're doing, they really should be given a lot of freedom. And then if there's a team who actually is just trying to figure it out, like they probably need a bit more guidance. So I think mm -hmm. that's kind of like, I would say the quick answer. You know, I worked again in many countries, you know, like India a long time ago. Like, you know, the first video game they had in India was fairly recently. So they didn't have, you know, the 80s and the 90s to build on. So, you know, when you talk to them, like their kind of game vocabulary is very limited compared to like people in the West because, you know, we played games since the 80s or whatever, right? So I think if you ask them to come up with a new thing, I mean, they might come with something a little bit simpler than if you ask like somebody who has played a ton of games. If you go to Eastern Europe, because they had most like PCs and not like consoles, they're really used to like, you know, strategy, like those kind of games. And then 
if you ask them to build one of those games, they're going to do like a great job because they know the languages and the difficulties and those things. But if you ask them to make a casual game, it's probably going to be on the harder side because they, <laughs> they, they like to like suffer and like all those things. But again, it's a bit of a cultural element. What are these guys good at? And again, that's another thing in Supercell, which is hard to reproduce because, you know, people say, oh, yes, let's just make autonomous teams. That's going to work. Mm. No, you're going to have autonomous key cast teams because like if it's a bad team and you leave them by themselves, you're probably going to waste a lot of money. You know? Like uh, you, got, you really got to give freedom to the people who deserve it. And that's kind of the challenge, I guess. Like how many of those teams you can build and then how much can you resist the temptation to tell them what to do? Those are the, those are the challenges. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The one big question usually to autonomous teams is when you're setting that system up, when you have a like an organization that supports that, then you need to have a safe way to give feedback. Like, you right. know, this kind of like proper trust there. And have you seen this kind of trust being built in companies where you have a place where you can give feedback without it backfiring into like resentment and things like that? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good one, I think. Because, yeah, you're right. Absolutely right. Trust is like a key element for a game company. And it's so hard. Usually, a lot of the teams I worked on, like uh, we started from behind because there's like some element in the past that people are still angry about that we kind of had to mm-hmm. kind of help. And sometimes that requires actually changing the personnel. So like, you know, there's some people who are so stuck in the past that you can't do anything about it. Like they should move on because it's going to be the best thing for everyone. But I think that the hardest thing about trust is like people just assume it happens. Like uh, it's the same thing with communication. Like, you know, I worked in a lot of companies where they're like, of course they trust us. Or they're like, well, I don't need to tell them that. Of course they know. And it's absolutely not true. Like you really got to put the energy into like making sure people know what you're doing, you know, this is why we're doing it. And then the trust comes from like saying something and then delivering on it, right? Because I think a lot of people are very good at saying stuff, but then they fail to kind of make the connection. Like, hey guys, remember I said that, like here, we did it. I think that's how you build trust is by, you know, delivering on your word. And I think, you know, a lot of people are easy to say, oh yeah, yeah, of course we're going to do that. Or yeah, we're going to do that. And then they don't. And they don't talk about it and then it just kind of slides and then trust erodes. And I think, yeah, communication in an organization, it's like a big challenge. And again, that's one of the things that why I liked, you know, the marketing person I hired. She worked in this kind of projects about the company culture and company communication. So when I'm, when we're talking about it, she was like, yeah, it's really important that, you know, people know why we're doing things and this is how it works. And so, you know, like, yes, okay, you're not just thinking about selling stuff. Like you're actually thinking about, you know, communication and all these things. And that's the kind of uh, culture I want to build where mm-hmm. we're constantly talking to each other. And, you know, like delivering on our promises. And if we don't, then we apologize and we explain why and work on it. But we can't dodge. Like, uh, you know, we really got to like deal with it. Yeah, very good points there. Then going into kind of like your own aspects there of work. And what do you think about happiness and achieving happiness (laughs) from your work? Is it something that you've gotten more happier the further you've gone in, in your career and understanding how to make games? Very interesting question. I think I think it's a curve. Like it really depends on what you're doing. At least for me, right? So I can't generalize. But like for me, my happiness depends on: Am I doing something that I'm excited about that I believe is going to be meaningful? And if the answer is yes, then it doesn't matter how hard it is. Then you know I get some measure of happiness from it. Of course, there's things you know if you're working crazy hours, then you know sometimes you feel a little sad. But you know I'll give you another example. This weekend I was working. And, you know, my days have been crazy because, you know, with other hiring and game launch and all those other things, I have a lot of calls and, you know, people, uh, you know, podcasts recording and all those things, right? <laughs> like a lot, of, a lot of hours in the day. And I had this work in the game script that I wanted to do and I just didn't have time because I had to sit down and think about it. So when Saturday came, I was like so happy because I'm like, oh, I finally can work on this because I really wanted to make this better. And then I sat down and I worked on it. And, you know, it took a few hours from my weekend, but I really didn't care. It made me happy because I was like, I'm really making our game better. 
And, you know, this feels like a good use of my, I actually relaxed by doing it <laughs> because it, it was something that I wanted to do and I didn't have time or, or had the headspace to do it during the week. So, yeah, I think for me, it's more about, you know, do you believe in what you're doing? Because if you don't, then really that's like the first sign that everything else is going to suck, right? You know, when I was in Namco, I had like a terrible commute. It would take me at least an hour and a half to get to work and then an hour and a half to come back, right? It's terrible. The only reason why I did it is because, you know, it was an exciting thing that we were trying to, you know, build this stuff and, you know, trying to help the company be successful in the West and, you know, working with, these, you know, big things like Dragon Ball and doing different things. So it was kind of, you know, again, I had the backing of the company, my three-year plan. So I felt like, okay, I have something excited. The company believes in me. We can do this. So yeah, the commute didn't feel as bad. I'm pretty sure like if I was doing something that I didn't like, I would quit within like a week because it's a mm. terrible commute, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's pretty bad. <laughs> I'm super happy. I don't have a commute nowadays. I'm working from the home office, but yeah. Take one and a half hours. To to the kitchen. Is, yeah, the kitchen is not far away, but uh, one and a half hours is... And you know, it's, it's one of those things like, you know, I would never suggest it to anyone. If somebody asks me like, hey, should I have this one hour and a half commute? I'm going to say, no, you're crazy. But, you know, I did it for three years without blinking because, you know, it was exciting and different things. At least for me, that's how it works for me, right? Like, I got to believe in what I'm doing mm-hmm. and I have to believe it's meaningful. Otherwise, you know, if I'm doing just the same thing and doesn't like it's not going to make any difference, then I probably should be doing something else. And again, that's why I'm happy with this company because, you know, I, I really believe in voice and I really believe we can make a difference. So it's like sweet spot right now. I think the people who are starting companies, they usually start off because they believe so much in themselves. Like that's a common trait for sure. Like for myself as well with everything that I've ever started. What comes to your mind when you see like as a third person, like from the outside, when you see somebody who's excited, like a young, maybe inexperienced entrepreneur starting their first games company? Yeah, I mean, obviously you're right about that. Like belief is a huge deal. I think uh, you really got to believe because honestly, it's hard. <laughs> so everything is hard and it's difficult. And, you know, obviously that's how you're doing it. So belief is really important. But I also think in my experience with a lot of new companies in general, not just young people, is you got to balance the belief with at least to your, you got to know like this, the things that you know, like you're actually good at and the things that need some help. And then when you have the opportunity to get some help, you should get the help. Don't feel bad about it. Even, you know, I have a lot of experience in making games and, you know, being an exec in game companies or whatever, but I never fundraised. So I wasn't ashamed. Like, you know, I had a lot of friends who helped me. I sent my deck to a bunch of people for feedback and, you know, people would give me feedback. I would listen, even though, of course, sometimes people would tell me something and I would still go my own way. But, you know, at least I made the effort to reach out. I have a lot of friends who did this. So I went and talked to all of them, like, you know, what is it like mentally? Like, how does it feel to get, you know, 50 rejections in like two months? And like how do things right? Like, how do you deal with those things? And I think that's probably the, the area. I talk to a lot of like young entrepreneurs and I can see like I'm trying to help them when I say certain things and I can see in their mind, they're like, whatever guy, whatever dude, like I can make this happen. Like, and I'm like, okay, like if you want to crash, that's fine. But like, <laughs> so sometimes, you know, they got to temper the belief with like, at least for themselves, they really should know like, okay, this stuff, like I'm good at this stuff, I could use some help because not everybody's going to be perfect at everything, right? And the sooner you identify your blind spots, the better. You know, again, being on the sides of acquisitions, a lot of the CEOs that we bought or, you know, that we kind of noticed, like the best ones were the ones that knew what they were good at and the things that they're not good at. And then the things they're not good at, they actually found someone good to do for them. The people who like thought they were good at everything and then they tried to do the things that they clearly weren't good at, like actually like that's the kind of thing that erodes trust in a company. And they're like, why is this guy doing this? Like he has no idea. It's much better if he just like doesn't touch that and then get somebody who's really good at that, that he trusts because obviously trust is important, but like, you know, then delegates because I think that's the best interpreters I've seen are the ones who can kind of balance those things. 
that is definitely something that people should learn in school already from a young age. Figure out where are your superpowers and where yeah, you don't absolutely. know. Absolutely, yeah. Let's go to some final questions here. What is your favorite book and why? <laughs> Can I say like The Little Prince or something? I've read a lot of books in my life. I read a lot of fiction primarily. I do read some business books, but uh, mostly fiction. I don't know if I had to pick one. I'll probably say like, you know, on their own. Lord of the Rings. The first book I read in English when I was like, you know, 15 or something. Like uh, it really captured me to the point to where I started playing Dungeons and Dragons right afterwards. And uh, it was an amazing thing. Mm. Do you have three stories that have shaped you to who you are today? There's people in the past that I have passed for a role that, you know, I didn't feel they had the right experience. but I kind of knew they were right for the job, but they didn't have the experience. And I picked someone with more experience and it turned out badly. I mean, not disaster, but, you know, I kind of realized like a couple of years later, I was like, oh man, I should have done the other choice. So I think that's one moment where I look back and like, oh, I wish I wasn't like so focused on experience. That's like one thing that I think has left up a mark. The other thing I think, you know, at Sumaya, actually, you know, we were 50 people and we looked around and everybody was great. I mean, there's like maybe a couple of people that if I had the choice, I would like go. But like, really, it was like an really amazing team. So just the fact that that's possible, because, you know, I don't think I've ever had like, you know, almost perfect team like ever afterwards. But it's kind of nice to go back to that experience. I know it is possible like if you have the right vision, the right management who enables and stays out of the way, people who care enough experience and enough organization to make it work and you know the effort in the communication because again like you know so may always had the friday coffee thing and you know again there's all these little things that work if you can put those things together it is possible to get to a perfect team so i think that was another thing that stuck with me because i think it's easy to give up and say oh yeah you know people are bad and i'll never get like a amazing team again but i think the amazing team it's not born it's built you know you got to get there it's not just like oh yeah i hired amazing people and the team's amazing no you got to build the chemistry and the all those things to get there so i think that's another lesson super important lesson for me is to realize that you got to put the work and if you do and if you get lucky because <laughs> mm. it's not just skill like there's luck involved too but it's like making games you know maybe we'll just leave it with you i'll save the third one for next yeah, time for next we're having time. a drink yeah yes <laughs> so that's the last question where can people find your games and to get in touch with you if they want to ask more? Yeah, if they go to our website, like you can reach all those things. So if you go to like dopiogames.com or dopio.games, like you can find both our contacts, but also like uh, more information about our games. But yeah, you know, the Vortex was the first game we released. It's out right now just in English, but we're adding a couple more languages soon. And then we have a new game coming out in not enough time, two weeks. Like we're desperately running to try to finish everything. So <laughs> yeah, it's probably going to be out when the episode goes live. Okay, thanks a lot, Jeff. Have a good day. Yeah, thanks, yeah, no, this is great. Thanks again, Jeff, for coming on the show. Please remember to hit follow or subscribe to our show so that you'll get notified when next week's episode is available. See you next time. Bye-bye.